Transmission will start in five seconds from now. Five, four, three, two, one, in. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on a degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. That whole TV show on a degree absolute. If you like lava lamps and weather balloons and whack ass inflections from Patrick McGoon, Chris and Glenn made a It's a degree absolute. absolute. Glenn. Chris. It's tribids. Tribids is the word, not, not tribides. You know, you learn oh. something new doing a podcast, and I'm not ashamed to tell you. I'm a little ashamed to tell you. Tribids is, is not a word that I knew. Okay. I don't think I did either. No, you corrected no. my pronunciation. Yeah, that doesn't mean I knew what it was. <laughs> In the the interview that our that our listeners are are about to hear with two filmmakers who made a vampire film called Blood of the Tribids, mm-hmm. and um, or, or Tribides. I I said Tribides, and mm-hmm. I was corrected. Okay. By Sophia Cassiola, who is one half of the filmmaking team that we're about to talk to with her, her husband, Michael Epstein. She chuckled a little bit when she corrected me. You also corrected me. That part is not in the interview because I took it out. But uh, mm, Smart. Very smart. <laughs> so naturally, but, but, but lead, yeah, no, yes, lead with but, that. Yes, good. Yes, yes. Do you know the definition of tribute, Glenn? No, I don't. A lesbian, especially one who lies on top of her partner and simulates the movements of the male in heterosexual intercourse. Hmm. Oh, sounds a little uh, gender essentialist, doesn't it? It does sound a little reductive. Uh-huh. But uh, when you search on the word, when you just Google the word tribid, the film Blood of the Tribids comes right up. 2016 <laughs> horror fantasy go. written and directed by Sophia Cassiola and Michael J. Epstein. So uh, that's like they got know, their maybe, finger. Maybe, yeah. So maybe it's okay pulse, that I didn't were, uh, <laughs> so <to speak. laughs> have that pronunciation or that definition Ooh. at the ready. But why are we talking about this, Glenn? We are uh, we are, we are going to declare up front that our dissection of Fallout, the befuddling climax of The Prisoner, will is going to take another week to get to you. We're still working on that one. As with our Once Upon a Time episode, that's a, a big one. Needs a little more time to cook. What we have for you this week is an interview that we recorded a few months ago in early April, delayed due to my technical semi-competence, but I'm very excited to bring it to you now. Now, this was a really fascinating interview with a couple of musicians who have uh, spent a lot of time creating an homage to the prisoner, uh, which is led by, I think, their, this incredible dedication to one and then you know, several others, uh, videos uh, that recapture the magic of the prisoner uh, intro and later on, much of the, the ambiance of The Prisoner uh, and put it to some uh, kick-ass music. Yeah, we, we know we've talked a little bit about certain songs by Iron Maiden, by The Times, mm-hmm. other groups that were about The Prisoner, inspired by The Prisoner. But how about a whole band, an yeah. entire band 
a punk rock duo, their whole thing is they, they have recorded a song and made an accompanying video based on each episode, or, well, inspired by each episode inspired, of The Prisoner. Yeah. Their name is Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. This is the duo, uh, life partners, creative partners, Sophia Cassiola and Michael Epstein. They're in L.A., originally from Boston. They are filmmakers, songwriters, musicians, obviously just as multi-hyphenate creative people. And about a decade ago, they started this project, Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, that began with a shot-for-shot, pristine recreation of the opening titles of The Prisoner. We're going to link to this video, of course, but it's, um, I mean, we, we just discovered this because someone sent it to us on Twitter. And uh, the, just the attention to detail is astonishing. When you consider what they had to, to go through, just to, 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 I mean, to acquire the proper model Lotus, which was a, you yeah. know, kind of a rare vehicle in 1966 when they're shooting this. And then this is, I guess, 2010 or 2011 that they're making their homage. And when you see this video, you will be staggered by the fidelity with which they, they have matched Every shot of the opening. Yeah, the word I think you're reaching for there, uh, Chris, is uncanny. <laughs> um, and also, uh, we get a really great breakdown of kind of behind the scenes of that video and others, including the fact that uh, the video we're talking about had a wig budget, uh, which you wouldn't necessarily <laughs> think. But yeah, it's a it great, did. they were yes. very generous with their time uh, for, for uh, talking to us. We really appreciate it. And I think you're going to enjoy this interview with the knowledge that the uh, Fallout episode which we did want to spend a little bit more time on, uh, is coming soon. That's right. Your attention, please. The Entertainment Committee is pleased to present a very special musical performance by numbers 48 and 100. Good people, please welcome Sophia and Michael do not forsake me, oh my darling. I think where we should start is in the crowded field of prisoner-themed bands. <laughs> how do you how do you make yourself stand out from the competition? I think with sheer insanity of uh, doing a full project where we recorded a song inspired by each of the episodes, and then of course doing the couple recreation videos that we did with just such insane attention to detail. 
um, really like launched us into like the prisoner fandom. And we were like really accepted by a lot of the people that people that watched it in the sixties, like still accepted our weird, like alternate rock. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you, you've, you've heard from people who were, were around when it was new and who are keeping the flame alive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, they all do the conventions like, uh, at Port Marion and stuff. So yeah, there's definitely a few, like we have like some British super fans that <laughs> have been fans of it for so long. Yeah. Yeah. They, they were, um, playing all of our videos at the Port Maricon to, as part of their opening ceremonies and, and um, the Unmutual the uh-huh. website. And there are a number of other prisoner Very websites. Cool. Yeah. And they always have been, yeah, they've been really uh, good to us about um, sharing our work. Yeah, it was weird too, because like when we did the video, uh, it was right at the time that they did the remake, which oh, was yeah. kind of not not very accepted (laughs) by anybody um but it was like a weird moment where there was like a lot of talk of the prisoner and so like we kind of rode that a little bit too is like because like it was back in people's minds was that just uh serendipity or were you aware that there was a remake coming and you thought it would be a good moment to uh attempt a project like this no it's just totally random yeah so we're huge like sci-fi nerds and and you know and we play music but we had just always meant to watch the show because we'd heard about it you know like we love Twin Peaks and stuff and sort of like we'd always heard about The Prisoner and finally we watched it and it was right at the time we were trying to start a new band and I just fell in love with number six I fell in love with the show the themes all of it and I was like let's just do wear the outfits and like we'll just name every song after an episode and and then it just kind of like snowballed from there but it was just like weird wow. timing it was also kind of important to us that uh, people who heard our music or saw the band, that it didn't rely on them knowing uh, about right. The Prisoner. Yeah. We didn't want to mm-hmm. do something because at the time there were a lot of, uh, for whatever reason, there were a lot of Harry Potter fan <laughs> bands. And um, and I, I think a lot of those bands kind of relied on you knowing the stories in the book and like about the characters. So we wanted to do something that was inspired by The Prisoner, but was abstracted from it to a, to a degree that it could be enjoyed without, you know, having yeah, a deep knowledge sure. of the show. Because right. you, you're, you're exactly that. You're inspired by, you are not beholden to, because the music stands on its own. You get illusions uh, here and there, but uh, yeah, the music does stand out alone. But you mentioned the attention to detail. In that recreation of the opening credit sequence, the attention to detail there is insane in, ter- in terms of shot length and things like that and just uh not just angles but uh expressions i mean sophia your expressions uh mirror uh McGowan so closely <laughs> and it's you know he had the disadvantage of not having discernible eyebrows and you at least uh we can we can see your expressions much more clearly where did that come from i mean once you have this idea of yeah let's let's recreate it the 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 yawning gap between the idea of let's recreate the prisoner uh, opening credits and the exacting detail with which you did, who got involved or was it all you guys to, to take you on that journey? Well, we weren't quite into film so much yet. Like we'd always loved film, but it wasn't something that we were doing. So we worked with a director named Theodore Cormie and he really like pushed us through the finish line with that project. It took over wow. a year of planning and doing it. It was 11 day shoot. It was shot for shot. We, you know, it was meticulous. And, uh, you know, so it was like his direction too, as far as like, cause I'm not really an actor, like, you know, <laughs> um, but like, you know, we watched it a lot and we would watch like, here's a two second expression, like mm-hmm. do it. You know? 
And it just, it took a long time. And especially finding the car. That was like our was biggest say. break. Because we were about to... <laughs> We were about to give up on it or we're like, well, maybe we'll do a motorcycle or something with the, the feeling yeah. of that car. And then finally we found a collector like because we lived in Boston at the time and he lived outside Boston. He just had the reproduction of that car, the Lotus 7 from mm-hmm. the 90s. They made like a prisoner wow. limited edition and they made like 40 of them. And he just had one. And he was like an older gentleman. And he was like, yeah, let's go have fun. He wore a blonde wig and drove around Boston <laughs> with this car. And so like that was our biggest break as far as like. Are we going to do this video? Are we going to like spend all this time and effort, you know? Um, but yeah, it was, it took a long time. And like, I like to call that video our film school because I just like hounded the director with questions and I like got in as much as I could to like help find locations and, and get all the help that we needed. And so like, that's really where I learned how to make like right, a video. Right. So- the car wasn't driving around London? The car was driving around Boston? Or did you guys go? It's all uh, Boston. Yeah. So, you know, Boston is uh-huh. pretty old <laughs> as well. And so it's just like finding locations that looked enough like London. So it's all downtown no, Boston. So was it the the actual owner in, of the, the Lotus 7 in a wig who was driving the car? Is that what you... Uh... <laughs> said earlier that that wasn't you no and it depends I'm, on what scene i'm wow. in okay. it i'm in the yeah. car for sure and in, in several okay. areas but anytime the car i think they put it in neutral for a shot <laughs> and like let me be in it for a minute but like i couldn't drive stick <laughs> and i yeah. couldn't drive that okay. car that's worth this like 100 is... grand you know yeah um Oof. so yeah so it was like all the far away shots are like he was like 80 this guy Aww. um and he wore like this Farrah Fawcett wig <laughs> through Boston. Wow. It was really cute. He was a really sweet guy. But yeah, so all the moving driving shots were him. And I think like they did in post try to put my face over, like especially, you know, there's a couple shots where they put my yeah. face over it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, CG, movie magic. It, it it was a cool car. It was oh a fun God, car to ride so in. Cool. So it was the uh, it was the Caterham Seven. Well, right? he it's had the... a lot of fun because he just like stuck me in the passenger seat and like especially when we were at the airfield, and he's just like, let's go really fast because he doesn't get to go really fast like in his suburb that he lived in. <laughs> and so yeah. I don't know how fast we were going, but like because it's no top on the car, it's like it's yeah. total wind blown. Like, sure, no, like I'm sure 35 miles an hour feels really. I fast. think so yeah. because <laughs> like there's no like suspension or shocks in that car, and you're so low to the ground, so you feel everything, and it's so loud. It was crazy, but it was a lot of fun. And, it, you know, he had fun with it, too. It was actually a runway. I, it was at an airport runway. So yeah, it was, it was a straight, like a so it was a long, long straightaway. Yeah. So he could he could really open it up. And, and, yeah, it was know. fun. Yeah. That's it. See, now, now you're helping me figure out why number six, not John Drake, whoever, whoever he actually is, why he would have that car. Because I keep saying, like, it seems like such a flashy car right. for him. Like, why would this guy drive a rock star car? And you just said it. It's because he wants to feel every goddamn <laughs> every bump in pebble. The road. He doesn't want to be <laughs> sheltered from sensation. It's super metal, yeah. <laughs> I was operating on this theory that The Prisoner is a show that appeals more to people who have, you know, some imaginative spark, some drive to to make things than it does to, I don't know, other kinds of people. 
And you are making me double down on this because I just assumed that you two were filmmakers already who decided this would be a cool project. The fact that you became filmmakers who have now directed features out of this, that's incredible. Yeah, thank, yeah. I mean, we're always like, because we're so DIY with stuff, we're like, well, how can I dive in and do this again for cheaper? <laughs> <laughs> you know? So it's like after that video, we're like, we want to make a lot more videos, and like, but we have to do it ourselves and for no mm -hmm. money. Let's say, I mean, there are probably other television <laughs> and, shows where doing a shot for shot recreation of the opening would be easier, like uh, Family Ties. <laughs> that probably wouldn't be so difficult. You could probably knock that out in an afternoon. Right? It's just something in a house. Well, what appealed to me about it is like that opening tells the entire backstory for the uh -huh. whole show. And so you get years worth of information in two minutes. And it happened to be like just about the length of the song I wanted to do. And so it's just like, it just that it was that or nothing, you know, at that time it, to just do that as best we could. I mean, we had miniatures. We built like miniatures of like the the village, uh, like control room sets. It was just insanity. Yeah. Well, again, with incredible attention to detail because it, it does look fantastic. Um, and Michael, you got a chance to dress up as an undertaker. That must have been fun. I, it, it was fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we, we had to, you know, pin the jacket the best we could to make it make it the right size. But no, it was a, the whole thing was just a, a great time. I mean, we, we really, um, it was just fun to problem solve. And the director did so much. I mean, Sophia already said, but he, he did so much pre-production. We talked about the time before we got the car, but I think that was a year into pre-production of finding locations and um, figuring out how we could possibly do some of these scenes. And um, it was just fun to problem solve and troubleshoot through the thing and look at every frame and say, like, yeah. how is that saucer breaking when he hits the table? <laughs> like, how does that work? Like, how do, you know, just trying to figure out some of the, there are a lot of um, surprising things like in that opening. Even, like, the X's on his face, it, like, they're pressing the H key, and it took, like, a lot <laughs> of us, like, like, frame by frame being like, what? Like, because... You know, the X isn't near the center it's of true. the typewriter. <laughs> and they're hitting the center. And so I was like, what are they doing? You know, it was just like, it was a lot of like insanity. <laughs> Speaking as the person who spent like 15 minutes making our little, you know, podcast artwork and Photoshop and put drawing little X's over our faces and thinking, this has taken a lot of time. This is really taxing my commitment to this project. I am well and truly shamed by your, your typewriter <laughs> discipline. Had to do it right. We knew we knew the nerds well, would- Well, uh, that was the thing too, because it is a fandom, we knew people were gonna be like, uh, this right. is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and so we really tried to get away from uh, any any uh, people on YouTube <laughs> attacking us. The, the, the songwriting project predated the video, right? Because you said that the opening sequence of The Prisoner was roughly the length of the song that you wanted to- create a video for and that was part mm -hmm. of the the genesis okay so you make that decision and then there's a year of your life that you're gonna well you know the band kept going you know it had just started and so we recorded an ep mm -hmm. of like the first five something songs uh and then we reached out to the director and started working on that video and then we just kept recording and playing shows and doing little tours and stuff so it's all kind of happening at the same time but definitely like the idea for you know doing the video came like after We'd done the EP and we had some songs recorded. Put your pen to the paper. Save your heart someplace later. And it sounds like this all began not very long after you had gone through the show for the first time, right? It's not like you saw the show at some impressionable age and it always stuck with you. 
Can you remember like no, what the interval it, was? It was totally timing because it was like we had just watched the show and I was like, I love like mod 60s, like pop, yeah, yeah. all the sets, like the clothes, everything. Like, I love uniforms. Yeah. You know? And so like just so much of it like visually appealed to me and like the themes, like I said. So it was like, it was just, I just fell in love with it. And then as the band started, I just, I would rewatch an episode, but it had only been like a few months, you know? So I would rewatch it, jot some notes down and mm. then write a song. And this this is what this is like 2010 or like where where are we in time? Yeah, like 2009, yeah. 2010. I think the video was released 11, in 2011. Yeah. yeah. So when you're playing shows, do you have some banter where you tell the audience, "So this is kind of the premise of our band," or do you just not worry about whether they, you know, they can go find that out on their own if they if they want to? We we were just so rock and roll that it was just like me screaming into the mic. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of. Uh, banter, but I, we definitely introduced a lot of people to the prisoner. <laughs> well, we didn't. Yeah, we didn't explain it. I mean, no, we didn't. Yeah. We, we actually we would have like rovers at some of the shows. We, yeah. would, we would blow up a rover and have it have it kind of bounce around until it broke because those weather balloons break pretty easily. <laughs> yes, they um, do. We learned we learned a lot about how hard it must have been to do the production originally. Well, even we went through a couple. Yeah, yeah. yeah we went through. A lot. I was watching a YouTube clip from I think a decade ago or so of one of your tests where you're on a basketball court somewhere with uh you're trying to i don't know if you're trying to figure out like the correct air pressure or something but where sophia is running across the basketball court with the the balloon behind her and i don't know i find everything about rover uh, hypnotic i think rover is a just a brilliant cinematic object especially for something that was a fill-in that was not the original yeah uh, designed for, for it wouldn't work at all as like whatever robot they had planned like just this white orb is so menacing well, you know it just it just this simple is better you know for that yeah you know whenever uh, patrick mcgoon is doing his weird little jog along the the beach and and rovers behind him i can never look away and watching you on a basketball court i was like there is something strangely compelling about this <laughs> <laughs> well, we were testing because we were like pulling it with fishing line and stuff. So we we're like testing to see if it was at all possible. Yeah. <laughs> and for a while, we had to go to the gas station every time to fill it up yeah. using the, the tire <laughs> we pressure to the thing. Gas station. Um, yeah. We we eventually learned we could use a shop vac. At first, you know, people were thinking, yeah, shop we're, vac on reverse. We're like, can we use a bike pump? And then we started doing the math about the volume of the of the balloon. And I'm like, I don't I don't think that's oh, gonna happen. Take like a century. Yeah. Yeah. So we realized the shop vac on reverse. Yeah, the the output of a shop vac worked, but uh, for a while, took a while yeah, yeah, for a while we we're going to the gas station to fill it up when we're doing the quarters. test. And the little yeah. like inflatable exercise ball that I have in my apartment has like a weirdly large warning label on it that says it will take three to four minutes to inflate this using a bike pump. It's a, like make sure you're prepared. You know, don't don't overcommit yeah. yourself.
you said that that the prisoner was just sort of a geek artifact that you were you were aware of and you like meant to meant to get to it. Yeah. I, Do you have more info on that? Because I think you're the one. It wasn't readily available it. at I the time seen, we saw like, it. Like an episode of it on VHS. Uh, I think I'd seen the just the um, arrival on VHS. Maybe maybe chimes also mm. uh, or something. You know, way back. Um, and I had meant to watch it again for a really long time. And I don't know why it. it I think it, it it just became available. It, it got it came out on DVD mm. and Blu-ray again at that point or or something. Um, and and so that inspired us to watch it. I said, oh, I you know I've seen this. Um, and I've heard a lot of people are really into it. It seems like the kind of thing that we would that we would like. And then, sure enough, yeah. We, well, we, we were fans <laughs> of the Avengers and like other shows like in that world a little bit. And I love like James Bond. I love spy stuff. So it just it was like always like a thing. Like oh, we'll get to that. And then when we finally did, I was like, wow, this is so weird. You know, it's yeah. weird for now. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> especially at the time, it's just like he just. It definitely just feels like a singular vision of a of a creative person just like being like I have to do this and right. somehow they let him do it. <laughs> the design is certainly timeless, and as you mentioned, the, the sets and the costumes, but the themes are um, well, you could say they're timeless, but they're actually very very timely right now. You mentioned that the themes spoke to you. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Just like the, you know, like the how he was bucking against the system and just trying to be himself and figure out like where he, what he was supposed to be doing, you know, with what he was, just how he, how he was. He was so angry against everything. <laughs> Where'd you get this bunch of Taylor's dummies? They were here when I arrived. Do you wish to question them? I do. Proceed. Who do you represent? Who elected you? To what place or country do you owe allegiance? Whose side are you on? Doesn't get too personal, my dear fellow. It's not just re- the resistance idea. I think there's there's something really important about it because people are are kind of citing the prisoner now for every possible perspective. Like you'll see people on any side of a political spectrum or any point of view being like the prisoner represents what I think. But yeah. but I think the key is that the prisoner is about resisting the immoral or the unjust, and it's about not being held down by a system that's that's unjust or that kind of exploits the people. So you know, in the opening which which we've, you know, talked yeah. extensively about now, he's resigning for some reason, right? We I mean we never discovered the reason. I assume that it's like but over it's, some moral it's thing. It's some moral yeah. reason, mm-hmm. right? So he's saying I'm not going to participate in a system that is doing something immoral or is asking me to participate in some immoral act. And I think that's there's something beautiful about his ethical sort of uh, stoicism and, yeah. and ri- rigidity yeah that and so i think that was there's something about like we wanted to I do i love kind that of, they never get a thing out of him <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the whole show because we, we were kind of doing music with like a, a little bit of a punk ethos but i think that like sometimes people get confused between the idea of like anarchy for the sake of like just being nihilistic or or you know doing not participating in uh, society or being a uh, an iconoclast and anarchy for the sake of like resisting the systemic injustices. And I think the prisoner is a show about resisting systemic injustices. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in Fallout, and I want to talk to you guys about how it was to, to watch that episode for the first time. Uh, <laughs> but in Fallout, he talks about youth rebels because it must. Uh, and he talks about the different kinds of rebellion the show does. Uh, you make a very good point, Michael, because you can the allegory is at once so strict, specific and so abstract, especially as the, sh as the show goes on, that you could really impute a lot of different meanings onto it. And that was one thing that Kirsten and I were concerned about, because we remember, I remember the show of watching it when I was a teenager uh, in reruns, and loving it for that rebellious spirit. And now going back into it, we were worried that maybe some of that is kind of like this pseudo Ayn Rand objectivist, right. you know, yeah. thing. And I, we were getting a little worried. I thought it was going to be like some QAnon kind of. Yeah, some uh, Tea Party like uh, stuff. So we were, we were yeah. worried and there are threads of it, certainly, but it's so, it's very, very tough to pull those threads because he, especially with Fallout, when he decided to go to abandon story logic and go right for allegory, right for illusion. That's that's what makes it a genius show. That's what makes it. That's what why people are still talking about it. But it is it 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 can be all things to all people. Yeah, no, for sure. You definitely can try to chase that individualistic. Like it's all about me part of it. Um, but I agree. I think it's more than that. And like I love Fallout. I can see at the time that people. That, that wanted, it's like Twin Peaks, that they wanted an answer, like a specific right. literal answer. They were probably very angry. But I think like watching it now, it's like, it's just, it goes so insane. It's about the id and it's like, he's taking off the masks and, you know, it's just so perfect for his vision and, and for the show, I think. Yeah. Um, we're, we're big, I mean, we're uh, obviously- we're We big, love symbolism. <laughs> we're big fans of, yeah. of that, you know, that kind of storytelling, of course. I love seeing, like on, on Facebook, one of my favorite things is seeing the prisoner groups and the Star Trek groups uh, full of people, like, arguing that the show means completely op opposite things. Uh -huh. uh, you know, ar arguing that the, the philosophy of, of each show is, um, to me, the opposite of what is pretty clearly, you know, on the screen that, that we're uh -huh. seeing. But... Um, you know, it's e it's easy to take take from it what you want. And I think that's that there's something beautiful about art that you can yeah. kind of like put yourself into a little bit yeah. and um, breathe into. I, I certainly don't want to be associated with the uh, Ayn Rand objective <laughs> objectivist sure. uh, version of the prisoner. But I, you know, to me, that's not that's not what I think Patrick McGowan meant by it. Um, it's not what it it reads as to me in any mm -hmm. kind of sensible mm -hmm. way and i'm always up for fandom when they are when they are having a spirited debate uh, d over interpretation over over what the um you know thesis of of this series this film that you know whatever is um it's a, like the sort of fan pissing contests about uh the, the you know the thing of like you don't like this thing that we both like in exactly the same way that i like it or exactly to the same degree that i like it that is just you know completely exhausting and and uh terrible you know i was thinking about this as i was going through the playlist of your videos because you start with the arrival one and it's this perfect recreation and then you depart you know, it's like yes, we have our own ideas. So we've shown you, yes, we can we can do the the perfect homage. You know, but we're not gonna stop there. We're gonna run with these ideas and put our own our own spin on them. It's, it it seems like this is a very eloquent way of of answering that kind of toxic element of of fandom where it's just you know very ungenerous. Right, a, a white knuckle grip on the on the material, so that it can only be yeah. interpreted one way. And and what those subsequent videos do is take common starting point and then just go off and that must be that must have informed your own filmmaking later because then you were you were generating ideas completely your own 
Can you mm. talk about that transition? What kind of led you further down the path into, into filmmaking? I mean, I think we, we both loved film all of our lives. You know, we both been big fans of as consumers. And I know like Sophia was on, in the AV club and, and I used to shoot, you know, VHS videos and dub them from VCR to VCR too. So we, it, you know, we had a long standing kind of interest in it, but the technology was a little bit more difficult to get access to or more costly. And I think what happened around 2010 or so is that digital media started becoming inexpensive. And that was what we, we made that video and we had done another music video for a different band. And it made us realize there's an audience interested in seeing video tied to music still on the internet, not just on MTV or other you know, major outlets. And if we could tell a good story, it didn't necessarily need the sort of technical perfection of something you know that that's might be a higher budget so we could we could maybe get a camera that was relatively inexpensive and start experimenting with telling stories that were meaningful to us and important to us around that time we could get a camera that a digital camera that was good enough that people would tolerate mm. that would tolerate watching it you know even if it doesn't look quite like a you know a cinematic and so that was what started us and then you know we kind of just grew from there and got more experienced and better and better gear and and just continued on that path since i think yeah i mean we like i was saying we love symbolism we love visual metaphor so like you know we started off doing just like a bunch of music videos and then like we're like we did like one short and then we're like let's do a feature <laughs> so it's like it just I, you know yeah. we just kind of dive into our projects i think with like a level of insanity i guess like just it's like a full like how can we make this as hard as possible and still like finish a thing so that was like the first feature we're like all right let's just do it we're also we're bad at tolerating i guess gatekeepers what i know is i was sent here by the highest authority you were indeed you should feel very proud we sort of saw all right if we can get a camera and we can point it at some people and they do some stuff we can make a movie i mean there's nothing really stopping us from making a feature film Everybody made the mistake of encouraging us after we made our first, we, you know, our first film was fine. It's fine. It has some good things in it. It has some not good things in it. But everybody was very nice to us. Some film festivals are very nice. It got distribution. So we're like, well, this, you know, this is a thing that we could continue doing if we, if we want. Just having the opportunity to kind of maintain that DIY ethic and being able to make whatever, like we can put literally anything we want, you know, within budgetary <laughs> means mm -hmm. we can put anything we want on screen. We can tell any story we want and we don't have to worry about it appealing to a wide audience. We just need to appeal to enough of a niche audience to make it work. And so that's why in, in a lot of ways, each of our films is kind of a little bit more niche. And we found, I think you'll find more success. I mean, this is true of the prisoner band thing too, right? It's like when you do something that appeals to that niche audience, all those people get really excited about it. If you tried to just do a band that appeals more broadly, maybe like nobody really cares, right? You don't even have that that little niche group. Um, so I think we've we've kind of worked on that line of thinking this whole time. Yeah, you're absolutely right because if you hit people in their sweet spot, the uh, uh, the really boring media term is engagement. The engagement is so much deeper. They feel like they've been seen. And so they have this uh, upwelling of love for you because they feel like uh, they they have they've been selected in a, in a weird way. I certainly know that feeling, uh, and and that's something about quote unquote genre um, media, science fiction, horror. They both they both can have a, certainly a general appeal, but uh, when you're coming at it from a place of your DIY aesthetic and your your own passion 
for the medium. Um, is there a through line there? Do you see? Was it natural for you to go from the prisoner to into horror? Into it, is there something that you feel like there's a, a thread there, or is it just uh, it, it's just what sells? <laughs> <laughs> no, we never do what sells. <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> Um, I wish we did. That would be nice. Um, but yeah, no, like people get really stuck in genre or in like what the output is. Like to me, like writing songs and doing music videos isn't that different than like the artistic like output of doing a film or doing a painting or something. It's like it's still like the creative output. That gentleman over there. What do you think he's doing? Tearing up a book. He's creating a fresh concept. Construction arises out of the ashes of destruction. And that woman. Standing on her head. She's developing new perspective. Really? So, like, genre doesn't bother me. I, we don't like straight drama because it's mm-hmm. kind of boring to me. Um, but anything fantastical, anything surreal, uh, horror, sci-fi, anything within that bubble, like... And I, I count, like, spy films into that sure. also, you know, because it's, it's fantastic. Um, so, yeah, the genre never really bothers me. And that's, like, a thing we get stuck in, too, is, like, our horror movies aren't, like, scary enough to, for some people, but, like, you know, too scary for others. So it's it's just, like, I try not to worry too much about, like, what is the specific through line. To me, it's all the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of European uh, festivals, for example, have, have, like, kind of a philosophy that's called fant- fantastique, right? Like, so for the fantastic. And um, I think they kind of lump in anything that is not realism, and that's kind of like what appeals to us using uh, surrealism or um, fantasy or, you know, science fiction elements to display like symbolism or to display metaphor or to tell stories that aren't necessarily literal stories, but are stories that might be able to reach you in other ways. Yeah. And so, you know, the prisoner certainly <laughs> falls in that category, right? I mean, especially mm-hmm. the further you go into it, the more it falls into that category. Give it to me, baby. Confess. Oh, Dad, I'm your baby, Dad. Yo, your baby something, Daddy. Confess. It's not that different from horror in that sense. Like, there's not really... I mean, there's a lot of horror elements in The Prisoner, like being trapped in a place that you don't want to be, like trying to escape a situation. Like, it definitely, like, it lands into that genre for me. Lost my So you you had uh, your uh, 70s European homage feminist vampire film, Blood of... Blood of the Trivets. Thank you. And then Clickbait is your 2019. That's kind of about social media obsession. And uh, there is one for 2021, right? You have a feature... It's not out. Yeah, we kind of got stuck. uh, We shot like half of a movie right in like last February and then like couldn't finish it. So we have a movie called The Ones in Future Smash, which is about two aging actors who played like the same killer in like a 1970 movie and now they do the convention circuit together and kind of have a rivalry so that's that movie and we shot like all the convention stuff and we shot like half the movie but we're waiting to finish it up wow. it's more of a mockumentary do... it's sort of a response to, to the fandom and and especially i mean uh, you know we're talking about these genre things um a lot of people because we're, we're very uh, engaged in the horror community especially 
And uh, horror people will always talk about how there are horror conventions and sci-fi conventions, but there are no drama film conventions. You don't go to like get <laughs> get your stuff signed by like drama actors. Um, so there's a different kind of uh, engagement and experience related to the you know the people involved in making yeah. these films. And so we wanted to explore. I, I think it's really fascinating that there are these actors who vanished for 20, 30, 40 years and are now back on the convention circuit, like engaging with fans and can't and some of them can't believe they're like I I made this movie in like 1970 19, yeah. and nobody I didn't think I thought nobody would ever yeah. see it and now it's selling out you know screenings like uh, you know 600 people are going to see it um, and people are coming to pay me for my autograph uh, related to this movie so I think that's just a really interesting uh, space and we wanted to kind of tell a story within that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I always hope that it's a rewarding thing for them. It's not like the the Galaxy Quest scenario <laughs> where they're just like, I can't stand this. Please recognize me from anything else. Yeah, I think they tend to come around to it, even even though, even though the people who are mm-hmm. grumpy about it, like, uh, I mean, the Leonard Nimoy is maybe the famous example where he sure. he, he wrote it, he wrote the book I am not Spock, and then and then followed it up with the book I am Spock after he he yeah. kind of came to terms with with that being his, you know <laughs> I mean even even uh, Patrick Stewart I, I've heard him say like if he's just remembered as as Jean Luc Picard that's like a, you know a great achievement that's like a wonderful thing and I think a lot of these horror actors thought you know I mean they they viewed themselves as like um, not. You know, they were professionals, but they weren't like really successful. They weren't household names. And now mm. to have people like lining up to get autographs is is meaningful. And to know that your movie and your movies and your work are connecting with people this many years later, I think that's they well, do just, they do find that special. It shows like the longevity of stuff like The Prisoner too, where it's like it still has relevance today because it's not based in reality, I think. Like, people aren't really watching, like, a lot yeah. of sitcoms from, like, the 60s and, like, you know, Leave it to Beaver or something, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, but they're watching, like, Halloween and, like, old horror movies and The Prisoners. So. Yeah. We are going to uh, revisit the 2009 AMC series as part of this, which we we haven't seen it since. Like, neither of us remember liking it. My, again, very imperfect, faded memory of it is that it, it did not have that surreal heightened quality that that the 67 series does on this this most recent examination of of these episodes i think of what draws me to it sophia is exactly which which you cited the production design the costumes the the what strike me as very bizarre music cues that seem to contrast very sharply with what's happening in the scene and the design of the control room and and rover and to, like i so anachronistic qualities of it are what make it more timeless and interesting to me. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I, we also haven't watched the 2009 one since it came out, but it did. It didn't have like the same like je ne sais quoi to it of like what what makes it good. You know, it's just like they put yeah. it in the desert and they made Rover bigger and like I, there's just no matching Patrick McGowan either. We mustn't disappoint them, the people who are watching. You know, James Cazibio is just like so out outgunned you know <laughs> it just he just yeah. couldn't hold it together for me but yeah absolutely i mean it's like you know and he said uh i read that he based like the suit jacket on his like primary school like uniform you know it's just like such classic elements that it's like so simple but there's something kind of dreamlike about it especially when everybody's wearing it you know, it kind of trans- goes through the whole show like that. You know, like lava lamps were new, and so they're using like lava lamps in the opening. <laughs> you know? I, uh, just, like, that I just got one. Of, like sixties TV, I think. It's it's also an era of very like gaudy production design yeah. in a way that we we really love. Like we're we're just big fans of sixties and early seventies. Oh yeah, like uh, the original Star Trek, yeah. <laughs> all mm-hmm. their cardboard doors and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
but there's that series was it called trek continues or like people who are, yeah. are making new episodes but like following the the whole visual palette of the 66 star trek yeah. yeah 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 they did a pretty good job and and some of the episodes are really yeah quite interesting i think they did they especially they did one that was like a lost or like a not actually produced episode uh by D.H. Fontana, right? Did they do one? D.C. Yeah. D.C. Yeah, sorry, D.C. Fontana. Oh, wow. Like an unproduced teleplay they, that she had. did something like it was like a lost script. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. I, I think also, I mean, going back to the 2009 show, a lot of people have said this, and I think it's probably true. Like if it were just a random show yeah. that they said it's kind of inspired by The Prisoner, has similar themes, it would have done better than if they, you know, than yeah. calling it The Prisoner or, or trying oh. to yeah. make it the same thing. I don't know if you ever saw the show Nowhere Man. Have you ever seen that? Okay, uh, uh, Nowhere I, Man, I, I, I would say, is the best show that's not The Prisoner at uh, capturing some of the feelings of The Prisoner. It was made in, I think, 1990. The early 90s. Yeah, yeah, I think it was 1990. And so it definitely oh, okay. has like a 1990 aesthetic to it. Um, the premise is that there's this guy who's a photographer, and he goes uh, to his... He has a big opening for his photography exhibit. He's taking these political photos... He goes to the exhibit. Uh, there's a big party. He doesn't want to stay there. He, he, he takes his wife and they leave and go to a restaurant. They sit at a table. He goes to the bathroom and comes back and there's somebody else sitting at his table with his wife and they pretend or they don't know who he is. Uh, and then it turns out nobody knows who he is. Um, and there are people erased. kind of chasing him and I won't tell you more about it. But it has that cool. same kind of like setup where yeah. it's a person... He's in the world. He's not just in, you know, in the village, yeah. but he's essentially same kind of thing where he's isolated and he's not really sure whether his friends are his friends, whose side anybody's on. And, um, you know, as we were watching it, I was like, wow, this is really a lot like The Prisoner. We watched some of the bonus features and the guy who created it said he was pitching a different show to the producer at the uh, to the execs at the studio and uh, they hated his idea. And uh, they said, hey, do you have any ideas that are like the show The Prisoner? Because I'm a really big fan of The Prisoner. And uh, he's like, I've got an idea and, and basically pitched this show. So the reason I, I mentioned yeah. that is I think that's the right way to create something that's like an outcrop of The Prisoner without it being, you know, they right. didn't call it The Prisoner. I think right. that would have been a mistake. Yeah. But um, yeah, Nowhere Man. Anyway. It, <laughs> it's Bruce Greenwood. It's really okay. good. Yeah, pretty good yeah. show. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Cool. We're gonna stop dumping on the on the 2010 thing uh, pretty soon, but like basically the idea of taking <laughs> McKellen, show, you suck, McKellen. You got no talent. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's not th anything anybody would say. But like, you are unpacking, you're attempting to unpack and explicate a thing that exists in the public consciousness because it is inexplicable and defied tidy explanations. So it's like you're taking a unicorn, a magical creation, and just vivisecting it so you can see what's on going on inside it. But like, no, it's not, that's not the whole deal here. Right. I think like there's a lot of uh, content from like the 60s and 70s that kind of exist because the Cold War was happening. Mm -hmm. And like, it's really yeah. kind of hard to create something based in that like later, you know, because <laughs> like that's not happening now. So it's like all the spy movies and James Bond and The Prisoner. It's all, you can feel the Cold War on top of it. And even mm -hmm. though it's not directly mm -hmm. about it necessarily, it's 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 part of like what they were processing. It's so interesting to me that so many of these pop cultural properties that have never really disappeared, they all originate from the same era. I mean, Star Trek started in the 60s, never really went away. Marvel superheroes started in the 60s, never really went away. And I like all of those things. And I especially like comparing and contrasting the differences as they get 
updated and reiterated and reintroduced again and again for new times and new audiences. But the fact that the prisoner has, with that one exception that we seem not to be able to stop talking about, has only been done once, it gives it a bit more more novelty to me. It makes it a little more exotic, uh, a little more interesting. I agree. And it's so short. It didn't like, you know, they just did the 17 episodes. It didn't like stay on for like, like Doctor Who or something where it's just on forever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, It's just so, yeah, it's so contained to its little time period. It's a little slice of like 1967, 68. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know they had plans, you know, to do other, other things with it, but I think in a lot of ways it's, it's, um, it's better that it kind of, you know, it's, it's left it what it is and it never, we never learned more about what was going on. We never got literal explanations for, you know, a oh, lot of the things. God. We never got the yeah. answer. We don't know why he <laughs> resigned. You know, I, mean, I think those are. I love in the prisoner like Facebook groups. Like every week, like a new person who's watched the show is like, is he number one? Mm-hmm. <laughs> every yeah. week, mm-hmm. yeah. And people mm-hmm. are like, just, just let it go. Just. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. He just has this this Manchurian candidate thing where he sees a teacup and a saucer and he just flies into a rage. That's that's all it is. He he just cannot abide the sight of tableware. This, this poor man. So Launch Over is your, that's your company, right? That's your, your production company. What, tell us whatever you want to plug, whatever you want to uh, talk about. Well, I, I'm, I'm being pointed at. Um, uh-huh. I think like, like we had talked about, our big project is this uh, mockumentary called The Once in Future Smash. Um, mm-hmm, we've done mm-hmm. quite a few little tiny uh, kind of pandemic, not, not related to the pandemic, but things that we could do at home kind of during the pandemic. Like we made yeah. a little uh, documentary about our most important pandemic creation, our, our new dog, our little guy, who's a uh, actually an old man. But we made a mockumentary, <laughs> senior, chihuahua. senior Chihuahua, who we adopted yeah. about a year ago. And uh, we made a mockumentary uh, called Bloodhound about how he's actually Dracula, who is in transformed into a dog stuck, has been stuck <laughs> in that form since. And so he's very upset. Yeah. basically but yeah launch over is like our music yeah. and and film home i guess yeah and we worked on a bunch of shorts we have a bunch yeah. of things that are we, we end up producing and, for other people yeah. sometimes mostly mm-hmm. it's our mm-hmm. our brain stuff but we end up working for others as well and we're okay. finally back to work i think we've got a whole we're bunch all of getting vaccinated short so films lined up and yeah you two are in los angeles right you you went uh went west from from boston yeah, we've been out here about five years. Yeah. yeah. So we did our first oh, three okay. features in Boston and then Clickbait was our first LA feature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You feel at home there? You feel successfully transplanted? I lived in LA for a little while and I don't think I stuck it out long enough to uh, to get over my initial pressure change. Yeah. <laughs> kind of. Oh, I uh, tell people it's personally. great being an East Coaster in LA mm-hmm. because you show up on time mm-hmm. and you follow through. <laughs> <laughs> You're not like a flaky in the sunshine kind of person. To keep your mind alert. What use is that to you here? And you can always tell us, like, we're in, like, Silver Lake wearing black. Like, you know that's an East Coaster. Um, <laughs> but we love, like, we were so beaten down by Boston weather. Even though, like, we were both, like, are from the East Coast originally. It's just, like, we just couldn't yeah. take it anymore. So definitely the sunshine is, like, transforming our brains into being mellower people. Mm-hmm. But what I love about LA is because it's so concentrated, there's people for everything. Like any kind of weird thing you want to be into, you can find 50 other people to show up at an event and celebrate that thing. And so that's what's been like the most cool about it, especially being into horror and music. It's like 
people are here that want to want to do those things with you. Yeah, and we're we're really like I said, we're really kind of involved in in the horror community, and so we go to screenings all the time and events, and and you kind of see all the people who are uh, you know not that they care about us, but we see kind of like the the you know producers for the major films in in the genre mm. and like the you know the people who are involved in it and a lot of the actors and so it's it kind of feels like we're part of that that world um and even just as like a, a even if we weren't creatives just as as yeah, consumers fans, of it yeah. <laughs> as fans of it i think you know that's that's really exciting and fun and um i can't complain about the weather that's no. really the big <laughs> Well, I'm glad you guys are going to get back into it. Uh, yeah, and, and Once in Future Smash sounds fantastic. I can't wait to see that. That's yeah, so and much. if you uh, would, would would rather not talk about this, we can just, just skip right past it. But I'm I'm curious about being your your life partner, is your creative partner, is your business partner, is your... Um, how's, how's that work? <laughs> is it... Uh... <laughs> People ask us this all the time. I mean, go, I you know, Glenn and I, our, our marriage lasted only a couple days. <laughs> I think I think it goes back to because we were in bands together before we ever started mm-hmm. dating. We had established the creative working mm-hmm. together first mm-hmm. before we got married or did anything else. So it's mm-hmm. always been part of our relationship. It's not like we were a couple and then we're like, let's go make a project and fight the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And we just have like such a strong shorthand with each other. Like we can be snippy and quick and say half a sentence to each other. And then the other one just goes and does whatever needs to get done. So it works well for us, but we're both, I like to say we're both alphas <laughs> because we both like just like yell at each other constantly <laughs> and we butt heads a lot, but it's always for the project and we don't really take it home with us, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's always just like, how can we do what we need to get done as quickly as possible and as as well as it needs to be done. And for film, it's it's so uh, for independent film, especially when you you don't have a lot of money or resources, it's so helpful to have two people who are yeah. deeply invested in the success of the project, and two people who really have a deep understanding of whatever it is that's going on. So we can split off and you know shoot scenes separately if we need to, or we can handle different things. And we found a pretty good in really all endeavors in music and in film. We found like which areas we have strengths in and which areas we're better off, you know, allowing the other person to kind of take charge of. Um, And so we've kind of subdivided duties in a lot of ways. And I think that's, Again, it's you know you get you yeah. can do twice as much and not. not I think it helps it. too because like we watch all the same movies together, you know, and so we have that like oh I want to mm-hmm. do like the thing in Suspiria where it does this, you know, it's like mm-hmm. you automatically know that the other person knows what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's like you know so we're getting like the same influx of information, <laughs> and so like the output, you know, when I'm like I want to shorthand something, it's there. Wow, Suspiria was actually one one of the references that I I actually had on deck because I was like, God, if we get onto seventies European horror, I am not well versed in this subject. But I have seen Suspiria. <laughs> we love all the Italian giallo movies. That's our like mm-hmm. absolute favorite thing. Uh, Bava, Argento, it's all and like Blood of the Trivets yeah. is like kind of directly inspired by the Vampire Lovers, the Hammer film, and like mm-hmm. some genre law and like and James Franco. Like they're all kind of doing like these weird like slightly soft core vampire films in the early seventies, but so many of them are so beautiful. And so you just kind of go down these rabbit holes, like we're going to watch all 40 of these movies. <laughs> we're going to watch every Giallo movie. And so we definitely go down. And then like, because we've consumed it all in a short period, we're like, let's make one. <laughs> so it's definitely like, you know. Back to that niche thing where it's like, I, there's, yeah. there's 20 people in the world yeah. who will understand I know. this movie. But I think it's like, because uh. I started like 
thinking I was going to do folk music. And then I realized that like, I'm much too like of a yeller <laughs> to do like a folk music. But I think like part of that ethos of folk music, is like you take the thing and you rework it and you make it your own and you spit out something totally different and totally new and totally yours. That's how I work in all creativity. So it's like, I watch a lot of movies and then I'm like, I want to spit out this, this, and this from this mm -hmm. genre. And like, that makes sense to my brain. You know, it's like, I process it in my brain somewhere and then it's its own thing, totally. Uh, and that's like, and I think it goes back to like folk music for me. <laughs> Boy, yeah, I keep hoping that the voracious consumption will eventually translate into output production <laughs> creation and you know it doesn't uh, i don't know doesn't doesn't just magically happen your work ethic is very very admirable i think we just lose our minds if we don't if we don't make stuff so it's yeah. not it's not a choice and we don't really do much else you know we don't have fun <laughs> we don't go on vacation or parties like we're just like oh let's yeah. you know if we want to see our friends we're like come over and let's make a video this weekend you what? know like if we want to have some social wow. Yeah, you can only be friends with us if you work on our movies, basically. Pretty that's, much. That's Everybody else kind of disappears. <laughs> it is striking when you see it. It is. If you have any interest in the show whatsoever, <laughs> it is just a feat of, of a, a tremendous accomplishment. So thanks again. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Wonderful to talk to you. I hope we will speak again or run into you at uh, Port Miracon. <laughs> it's our bucket list to make it there for one of their conventions. Yeah. We haven't done it yet. <laughs> So Glenn, as, as I said, um, some time has gone by since we had this conversation. So I did email uh, Sophia to, to see if there was any update. Um, said, no, not, not really. Um, the Once in Future Smash is still the, the current project that they're working on, but you can check them out on launchover.com. You can hire them if you, if you wish, if you have a filmmaking production project, photography, anything like that. They are perhaps available to assist you. I did learn that in the interim, since we recorded that interview, Glenn, Sophia appeared on a, a podcast. And this is another podcast premise that uh, I'm, I'm a little angry I didn't think of first. But uh, it's about 80s, 90s genre stuff. These are action movies that the host, Tony McMillan, encountered at a tender age. So the title of the podcast, Glenn, is uh, Too Young for This Shit. Oh, I like that. That's pretty great. Good. That's a great pretty way good. in. That's a great way in. It is. Talk about and, stuff that a lot uh, of people are talking about, but Sophia, bring a new... Our friend Sophia was on a recent episode dissecting one of, one of the classic Saturday lawn mows, Glenn. An essential Saturday lawn mow. You've seen it. You've mm. seen it. Mm. If it bleeds, we can kill it. Okay. So it would be pre it's, pre it's Predator. It's Predator. Predator. Oh, okay. Classic, right, good. classic Saturday lawn mow. Uh huh. Man. Uh -huh. And uh, Sophia loves it just as much as I do. Glenn, when the, when the host of that show asked her to name a favorite character from Predator, she went straight to Bill Duke's Mac, who I know I don't have to tell you, Glenn. Bill Duke. You, you, you do. No, he, he has that incredible monologue eulogizing his buddy Jesse Ventura, Blaine, after the Predator has killed Blaine. Uh, and <laughs> I figured. Bill, Bill, Bill Duke, he carries around those plastic disposable razors, and he just shaves his face when, he's, when he needs to concentrate or calm down or whatever. So this is like a little tick that he gives his character. He is dry shaving his face in the jungle, that jungle humidity, uh, while he is just talking about his friend who has died. It's an incredible scene. It really is not the kind of moment that you expect in a film like this. And it mm -hmm. elevates the film. It's a great performance. And the fact that Sophia named that as her favorite performance in the movie. I just like, you know, we knew from talking to her for an hour, Glenn, that this, yeah. this, is, a, this is a woman who has great taste, but confirmed again, Glenn. Great there taste, go. great taste. There you go. That's great to hear. All right, so 
Next week, we will be back here talking about Fallout. We'll have our Geiger counters on. We will be uh, wearing our lead-lined antimicrobial, anti-radiation long johns, I guess. Oh. We're, we're going to be ready to decode some symbolism. Yep. Uh, we'll feel a new stuff. man or two, and we will oh. uh, launch wow. a... And this will take place uh, at the right time, no, at the right moment, in the right place, at a propitious time. I don't know. It's been a long time since I've seen it. All right, Glenn. Well, don't miss that, listeners. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Our thanks again to Sophia Cassiola and Michael Epstein. Check them out on launchover.com. Back here next week for Fallout. Be seeing you. Be seeing you. Degree Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klemick. I wrote our goofy theme song, which was then arranged and beautifully performed by my dear friend Casey Aaron Clark, singing and playing keyboards, and her brother Jonathan Clark on guitar and percussion, with Marcus Newstead on the bass. Check out Casey at CaseyAaronClark.com and or VitalVoiceTraining.com. Jonathan's band Daybringer is on Bandcamp. The music of Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, Sophia Cassiola and Michael Epstein, which you're listening to right now, is also on Bandcamp. Go buy it. They're great. Our thanks again to Sophia and Michael. Launchover.com, all one word, is where you can keep tabs on what they're doing. Write to the Citizens Advice Bureau at a degree absolute at Gmail. You can tweet us at not a number pod. You leave us a five-star review with your wildest prisoner take. We will read that take on a future episode. You can hear an increasingly rare Chris and Glenn episode of Pop Culture Happy Hour this Friday where we will join our old friend Linda Holmes and our new friend Vincent Schilling to talk about Black Widow. That'll be out Friday, July 9th. And speaking of NPR podcasts, Glenn's latest book is the brand new NPR's podcast startup guide. That would explain why Glenn has had a ready answer for any podcast manufacturer question that has presented itself during this long and winding road he, he hasn't he really has not but you should still get the book it is not lost on me that glenn is doing this project with me at the same time that this book is being published because some damn fool accused you of being the best It's a degree absolute, absolute. Good, good, good. Okay. Lost a little steam there at the end. No, but we, well, you know, we, we both get time. tired. Yes, we do.